And make your way to Judges chapter 19. Lord willing, we are going to close our study tonight, finish up in the book of Judges. And then we'll move into 1 Samuel with Saul, well, Samuel, Saul, King David, Solomon. It's going to be a great study. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, all right, so Judges 19 is where we're going to pick up. And we ask the Lord's blessing on this uh, particularly intense um, portion of Scripture. I should have mentioned uh, before break that, and I, I don't see any children, but uh, chapters 19, 20, and 21 will talk about things that I wouldn't be comfortable speaking of in front of children. So we have a great children's ministry. Nobody's looking around. Everybody close your eyes. And uh, if, uh, if you have a child, uh, it'd be best that you explain what you'd need to explain to him or her afterwards. Awesome. Thank you. That was good. All right. Now, Heavenly Father, we do ask for your blessing on rather... Uh, intense and troubling passages tonight, the result of man doing things uh, in their own wisdom, without God's word, without God. So Father, we pray that we would learn that you would give us grace to understand these really troubling matters and these sensitive issues. Speak to us, Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. After pre-reading chapters 19, 20, and 21, I was searching for a fitting illustration to introduce tonight's study, and I recalled a story that Pastor Nathan told me uh, some 10 years ago. I'll retell it now. I hope I get the details right. Uh, Pastor Nathan works for the city of Sebastopol and on one occasion had to descend into the pump house uh, down below for the sewer system for maintenance. Uh, before he opened a main valve, not all the counter pressure valves were appropriately shut. So as the main valve came open, the flow burst forth like a fire hydrant explosion. He had trouble shutting the valve by himself. He was radioing for help. He had the valve partially open as the pump house began to fill slowly. Two feet high, he finally, with God's grace, got the valve closed. Praise God. And he's here to tell about it tonight, even <laughs> 10 years later. Well, uh, when the sewer flows, it's not a place you want to be. And after you read chapters 19, 20, and 21 of a spiritual sewer encounter, uh, you'll feel the same. It's not a place you want to be. The last five chapters of Judges gives us two examples of how the nation of Israel has descended into the sewer, spiritually speaking, 
First, we looked at it last time, two chapters, uh, uh, when individuals and uh, religious systems divorce themselves from God's truth and do things uh, in their own eyes. Uh, now, society and the nation, what happens to them, and an il illustration uh, from society unraveling chapters 19 through 21. So tonight, as I've said, perhaps the most hideous, troubling narrative in all of scripture, disgusting, pathetic, shocking, and defiling. Uh, the end result, of course, of exchanging the truth of God for a lie and worshiping created things over the creator, Romans chapter 1, will just explain this is where you go. There's only one way to go when you divorce yourself from God's truth, and that is a death spiral into the sewer, spiritually speaking, and destruction. And so the narrative for our consideration is bookended by the same verse, Israel has rejected their king, the Lord, and everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. They're doing their own thing, not God's. And so that really will end the book of Judges, bookended, as I said, by that verse and this terrible story that we're about to read. Now, God's purpose in allowing such things to appear in his holy word is really a wake-up call. It's really uh, showing the individual, the church, his people, nations, life without God, life against God's word takes you to a place nobody really wants to go. And mind you, they're doing what's right in their eyes. They're not doing what they acknowledge is wrong. That's another sermon. These folks are saying, uh, this is the way it should be done. This is what I think best, given the circumstances, because they're not connected to God or his truth or the Holy Spirit's uh, inspiration. And so uh, humanism is defined as putting man at the center at the expense of God, what seems right and good uh, for and convenient to man to promote man's good. That's called humanism. And, and the Bible speaks very clearly that when man is at the helm, uh, disaster is imminent. And so uh, they are sincere. They're doing what's right in their own eyes, but they're disconnected from God. Biblical mores have been replaced with humanism. And so right has become wrong, and wrong is right, and evil is good, and good is evil, and truth is a lie, and falsehoods now are embraced as truth. Sound familiar? That's the way things are going in our beloved nation. Now, in the days ahead, once the church is removed and taken out of the way, the world will receive her king but it'll be the Antichrist. And the preparation for that reception of a king is now exchanging the truth of God for a lie. So a delusion will come upon the world, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says, and they will perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And so as soon as the church and the truth, which is called the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth, 1 Timothy chapter 3, when that's taken away, the world is ripe to call the Antichrist Christ. 
and Christ, the devil. It's just an upside inversion of truth. Let's descend into the pump house and we'll read now through the end, Lord willing, tonight. So we've got a lot of ground to cover, uh, chapter 19, 1 through 8. In those days, Israel had no king. Well, of course, they had the Lord as king, but they rejected that. Now, a Levite, a different Levite from last story, who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim, took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. But she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her father's house in Bethlehem, Judah. After she had been there four months, her husband went to her to persuade her to return. He had with him his servant and two donkeys. She took him into her father's house, and when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. His father-in-law, the girl's father, prevailed upon him to stay, so he remained with him three days, eating and drinking and sleeping there. On the fourth day, they got up early, and he prepared to leave, but the girl's father said to the son-in-law, refresh yourself with something to eat, then you can go. So the two of them sat down to eat and drink together. Afterwards, the girl's father said, please stay tonight and enjoy yourself. And when the man got up to go, his father-in-law persuaded him, so he stayed there that night. On the morning of the fifth day, when he rose to go, the girl's father said, refresh yourself, wait till afternoon. So the two of them ate together. Now, uh, number one, the snowball effect. One religious leader is not where he belongs. The Levites were assigned a place to be, and now he is not there because why? Because everybody's doing whatever they want to do, and God has told the Levites, I've given you towns. You're a deacon to help the priests. You have a place to be and a, and a town to live in, but everybody does whatever they feel like. So he's going to start the whole ball rolling. And by the end of the, this whole process, Thousands of people will be dead. And it all started with just one guy saying, who am I hurting? I'm not hurting anybody. Yeah, I'm not doing exactly what I should be doing. Not a big deal. I can't make a living where I'm at. And so what, are you going to blame me? I'm doing what I got to do. A guy's got to do what a guy's got to do. You got a problem with that? Yeah. <laughs> We do. <laughs> and one, one wife uh, is not faithful to her husband. Now, he, she's a concubine. That means a second-class wife. Uh, we don't know that he had a wife. It doesn't say. But a concubine was usually in addition to a wife if the wife couldn't bear children or was displeasing. The guy would go out. This is not God's command. But of course, God's commands aren't very popular right now. Not that that matters. And so we can get a concubine, even if we are a Levite, a holy man, religious worker, who knows the truth that God didn't say you can have concubines. But you know what? You got a problem with that? Yeah, we do. <laughs> you gotta have a concubine. And the, and the concubine says, you know what? You're not meeting my needs. So I'm gonna find it in another guy. You know why? Because I'm gonna do what's right in my own eyes. So everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes, and it just starts just with a little snowball on top of the hill, and then you just start to roll it a little bit. And so the tsunami of destruction will begin, like most tragedies, with seemingly insignificant 
events. And so now we have this um, uh, deacon. He's married sort of to his second class wife. From now on, I'm going to refer to her as the wife and he the husband. Um, and, and so to make things easier... Obviously, it's self-explanatory here. The wife goes uh, home to dad and mom, to Bethlehem. After four months, he's lonely, whatever. He's, the feelings have subsided, and he attempts a reconciliation. And uh, he goes to the house to retrieve his wife from his father-in-law's place in Bethlehem. And the dad is just happy that the disgrace to the family about a divorce is soon going to be dissolved. And so he gladly welcomes him, but clearly he's lonely or something because the Levites' attempts to get an early start home with the wife are thwarted by the father-in-law. He keeps delaying their departure by keep bringing out the cheese and the bread and the dipping sauce and the wine. And by the time they're done eating and drinking, it's 3 o'clock. And he says, you know what? It's 3 o'clock. Where'd the time go? Hey, refresh yourself. You start out tomorrow, and then he do the whole thing all over again. Well, day five, the son-in-law catches on and says, we're leaving. I'm sorry. Even though it's 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon, we're leaving now. And so they travel in the, in the um, direction of Jebus, it says here, which is where the Jebusites lived. The pockets of Canaanite resistors have not been conquered until David's time, and that would be Jerusalem, so six miles uh, north to Jerusalem from Bethlehem. So they're off, verses 11 through 21. Now, when they were near Jerusalem and the day was almost gone, the servant said to his master, Come, let's stop at the city of the Jebusites and spend the night. His master replied, no, we won't go into a foreign city whose people are not Israelites. We will go on to Gibeah, he added. Come, let's try to reach Gibeah or Ramah and spend the night in one of those places. So they went on and the sun set as they neared Gibeah in Benjamin. There they stopped to spend the night. They went and sat in the, at the city square there, but no one took them into his home for the night. That evening, an old man from the hill country of Ephraim, so he's a transplant to Gibeah, who was living in Gibeah, the men of the place were actually Benjamites, came in from his work in the fields. When he looked and saw the traveler in the city square, the old man asked, where are you going? Where did you come from? He answered, we are on our way from Bethlehem in Judah to a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim where I live. I've been to Bethlehem in Judah and now I'm going to the house of the Lord. No one has taken me into their house. We have both straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for ourselves, your servants, me, your maidservant, and the young man with us. We don't need anything. You are welcome at my house, the old man said. Let me supply whatever you need, only don't spend the night in the square. So he took him into his house and fed his donkeys, and they had their feet washed, and they had something to eat and drink. So Roman numeral number two, a pathetic irony, God's people will be morally worse than the pagans at Jerusalem. William MacDonald from his Bible commentary, it would have been better for the Levite to have spent the night with the heathen that will, rather than the professed children of God, for the latter 
had already become more vile than the former. So you, we have the picture here. The sky is streaked red, the light is dimming, and they're in Jerusalem, but Jerusalem is under the domain of the Jebusites, so he says it's too dangerous to stay in a foreign occupied place. And so we'll go on to the safer Benjamite territory. Um, and so they travel more, four more miles so that they can be safe and well-received. He expects better hospitality and safety, but he's going to find otherwise. So sad. I think of the situation at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when Paul says, you know, to the church, it's actually reported there that sexual immorality among you of a kind that doesn't even occur among the pagans, a man is sleeping with his stepmother, his father's wife. And you guys think it's funny, kind of novel. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It's really sad when Christians can out-sin those who are unbelievers. And that's what you have here because what's about to go down is going down in, in Benjamite territory. These are the people of God. This isn't the pagan city. So visitors, verse 15, would routinely go by custom to the town square. There, there weren't um, inns and hotels and hostels. And so everybody uh, relied on hospitality of the people. And in fact, it was commanded in Leviticus 19, Leviticus 25, Matthew 25, Hebrews 13. In fact, in inhospitableness with God's people is a sign that something is really off. And so in verse 15, the scary music starts. They're in the city square. The, the light is, uh, the sun is setting, and nobody's around, and nobody's offering hospitality. And so something is afoot. It's too eerily quiet. Verses 20 and 21 uh, in a, an exception to the wicked city, you've got a guy who's actually from their hometown who's not a, a Gibeonite and comes and uh, says, hey, you guys can stay with me, gets them out of harm's way, tends for their every need, but his efforts to protect them will prove vain. Now continuing in verse 22. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came to your house so that we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, no, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this disgraceful thing. Look, here's my virgin daughter and his wife. I will bring them out to you now. And you can use them and do to them whatever you wish, but to this man, don't do such a disgraceful thing. But the men would not listen to him, so the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them, and they raped her and abused her throughout the night, and at dawn they let her go. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door, and lay there until daylight. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, that's the husband. 
There lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. Roman numeral number three, children of the night or sons of the devil. A similar scene from Genesis 19 only the aggressors in that case who demanded to have relations with two male-appearing angels happened in a place called Sodom and Gomorrah, not related to Israel at all. So the picture here is very clear that during the time of Judges, Israel is as wicked as Sodom and Gomorrah, only worse. Because when you have knowledge and accountability there's a greater culpability to your deeds. It's one thing for Sodom and Gomorrah to act like that. It's another thing for the children of God. And so, really, once the spigot is open, it's really hard to stem the tide. Uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 1, and I want us to read it together, 21 through the next few verses, Romans chapter 1. This kind of degradation that you just witnessed uh, really is explainable, as I mentioned in the introduction in Romans chapter 1, as a result of dethroning God. Some people call it deicide, the murder of God. Starting at verse 21. Speaking of pagan unbelievers in societies, verse 21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Verse 26, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts, even their women exchange natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God... He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey parents. They're senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. So God is not surprised 
by Judges chapter 19. He says this is what happens in a society that uh, does away with him and his word. And so when sinful humans take the helm, it's a freight train without brakes speeding down the mountain. Now, what about our Christian nation? 10 million violent crimes last year, 17,000 cold-blooded murders, 45 people were murdered today, 500,000 robberies, 85,000 rapes, 3,322 babies died today, not at the hands of twisted miscreants at night, but at the hands of their mom through the hands of a doctor or a nurse. You got to do what you got to do. You're not in my shoes. I've got to do what's right for me. You got a problem with that? Yeah, we do. Uh, legislating immorality as right, and then the opposition as hate mongers. Just opposite. Rwanda was one of the highest percentages of Christians in any of the nations of Africa. And they went crazy hacking away. Up to a million people. So I'm not, I don't want to act too surprised with Judges 19 and act like, oh, my poor ears, you know. I, I mean, I live in this world. And so do you. I personally think it's a wonderful world. It's a paradox, isn't it? I mean, I, I see, uh, you know, babies laughing and sunshine and sunsets and beaches and beauty and fun and laughter and Thanksgiving and Christmas and, and joy. I, I like life. I like the world. We love the world. It's a beautiful place. But at the same time, that's not all we see, is it? So these men at the door wanted what they wanted. You know, that's what we do here. You got a problem with that? Yeah, we do. Now, a few shocking and, and, and frankly, angering offering here, the offer, the Middle East hospitality code, strange to our ears, but helps us understand a lot as well. When you come into somebody's home in the Middle East, uh, you, you live and die for them even if it costs you your own family or your own life. We don't understand that, but that was what was going on. It's still wrong and inverted. God would have never expected that to come out of his mouth, but, you know, we are doing whatever we want. So um, a host has got to do what a host has got to do. You got a problem with that? Yeah, we do. Okay, well, I'm going to probably be asking you that, several times, so go ahead and say, yeah, we do. All right, you want to practice? Ready? Yeah, we do. All right, so the, the, the Levite, to save his own skin, puts his wife out here. You know what? A guy's got to do what a guy's got to do. Okay, they want to 
kill me, but before they kill me, they want to rape me. A guy's gotta do what a guy's gotta do. And he puts his wife out there. You got a problem with that? Yeah, we do. That's not the right thing to do, buddy. Uh, so verse 27, he sleeps through the night. He opens the door. She's laying there pretty much dead. And heartless, he says, get up. And he puts her on the donkey. I'd argue that he's worse than the guys at the door. I'd also argue um, that you're probably not going to see him in heaven. No, <laughs> I don't. <laughs> that was good. All right. That's like pretty good. Verse 29. All right. Hold your breath. We're not done yet. Verse 29. Ready? When he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine, limb by limb, into 12 parts, and sent them into all the areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it said, such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day of Israel's came up out of Egypt. Think about it. Consider it. Tell us what to do. They were, all right, so when you wanted to send out a 911 call to the whole nation that said this is life or death, we all gather or we're all going to be annihilated. You would chop up livestock, an animal, and send the parts out, which meant we're dead men if you don't all come. Nobody had ever done that with a human being. And so he gets the idea, this is what's right in this situation, and I'm going to send parts out to get everybody's attention. Uh, a quote from a commentator, to this demented soul, it's right in his eyes to make this crime against his wife national news using this crude and devilish method of alerting the nation. All right, chapter 20, 1 through 14. Then all the Israelites, well, apparently got their attention, uh, from Dan, which is the highest northern point, to Beersheba, the lowest southern point, and from the land of Gilead, came out as one man and assembled before the Lord in Mizpah. The leaders of all the people of the tribes of Israel took their places in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 soldiers armed with swords. By the way, the Benjamites heard that the Israelites had gone up to Mizpah. Then the Israelites said, tell us how this awful thing happened. So the Levite, the husband of the murdered woman, said, I and my concubine came to Gibeah in Benjamin to spend the night. During the night, the men of Gibeah came after me and surrounded the house, intending to kill me. They raped my concubine, and she died. I took my concubine, cut her into pieces, and sent one piece to each region of Israel's inheritance because they committed this lewd and disgraceful act in Israel. Now, all of you Israelites, speak up and give me your verdict. All of the people rose up as one man, saying, None of us will go home 
Not one of us will return to his house, but now this is what we'll do to Gibeah. We'll go up against it as the lot directs. We'll take 10 men out of every hundred from all the tribes of Israel and a hundred from a thousand and a thousand from 10,000 to get provisions for the army. Then when the army arrives at Gibeah in Benjamin, it can give them what they deserve for all this vileness done in Israel. So all the men of Israel got together and united as one man against the city. The tribes of Israel sent men throughout the tribe of Benjamin saying, what about this awful crime that was committed among you? Now surrender those wicked men of Gibeah so that when we put them to death, that we may put them to death rather and purge the evil from Israel, but the Benjamites would not listen to their fellow Israelites. From their towns, they came together at Gibeah to fight against the Israelites. So Roman numeral number three, national outrage. So apparently they've been reading the tabloids and listening to talk radio and they're all riled up. Chosen warriors, get this now, from the 11 tribes, the, Gibeah, the Gibeites, the people from Gibeah, the men who did this, are Benjamites. They live in the state of Benjamin, right? The other 11 states have come against them and said, we're not going to wipe you all out. We just want the bad guys so to, to the Benjamites, they said, send out only the bad guys and we'll execute them. But the Benjamites say, uh, excuse us, we stick together with our guys and we'll fight against all of you 11 tribes to protect the bad guys who were out the door and did the deed. That's right in their eyes. Uh, you, uh, listen, a tribe is a tribe. And these guys, they made a mistake, but we're going to stand with them. We don't care that there are 400,000 soldiers waiting. Tribe's got to do what a tribe's got to do. You got a problem with that? Yeah, yeah I thought you would. <laughs> All right, so uh, uh, notice the Levite in his explanation. They are, they're on a fact-finding Mission. The, the law required that before they did any vigilantism. And, and so they come down and they say, what was up with this? What happened? So the revisionist historian says, oh, let me tell you what happened. You know, some guys came and they wanted to kill me. And then you know what they did? They just, they, they, they raped my wife and killed her. Where's the, the other part? There's some other parts missing there. The part where you shoved her out of the door and went back to bed. Where's that part? Oh, yeah, he forgot. All right, so amazingly, this tribe is saying, you got a problem with us, and we're going to fight you. It doesn't matter. So here's God, I think, saying, you know what? I've been looking for a way to judge all of you. So I'm going to let this happen. And so we're going to see him kind of letting it happen. And they're going to ask him what to do. And he's going to kind of say, go ahead. And he's going to bring judgment on them all, 15 to 23. So at once the Benjamites mobilized 26,000 swordsmen from their towns, in addition to 700 um, chosen men from those living in Gibeah. Among all these soldiers, there were 700 chosen men who were left-handed, each of whom could sling a stone at a hare and not miss. 
Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 swordsmen, all of them fighting men. The Israelites went up to Bethel and inquired of God. They said, who shall go first to fight against these nasty Benjamites? And the Lord replied, Judah shall go first. The next morning, the Israelites got up and pitched camp near Gibeah. The men of Israel went out to fight the Benjamites and took up battle positions against them at Gibeah. The Benjamites came out of Gibeah and cut down 22,000 Israelites on the battlefield that day. But the men of Israel encouraged one another again and again took up their positions where they had stationed themselves the first day. The Israelites went up and wept before the Lord until evening, and they inquired of the Lord. They said, shall we go up again to battle against the Benjamites, our brothers? The Lord answered, go up against them. So Roman numeral number four, battle number one, there are three battles. The Benjamites are ready to put themselves in harm's way and fight the whole nation. So the Benjamites, they got 26,700 men. 700 of those guys are like specialized Navy SEAL kind of guys who could really pick off a mosquito within 100 yards and then versus uh, 400,000 from the 11 tribes. So time for the obligatory check-in with God. So they say, oh, God, tell us we want to go up against these bad boys. You know, who should go first? And and the Lord is like, okay, send Judah. So 22,000 men from Judah die, are slaughtered. Now, Psalm 18 says, to the faithful, you show yourself faithful. To the pure, you show yourself pure. But to the crooked, you show yourself shrewd. He's like, are you kidding me? Now you're asking me, you know, who should do what? I'll tell you, go. Yeah, Judah. Judah, go first. And God's bringing down the paddle on the whole nation. He's going to say, you know what? I don't need to raise up the Philistines against you to get your own attention. Now I'm just going to raise you all up against each other and let you go for it. So yeah, why don't you send uh, Judah? So continuing on, 24 to 28, round two. Then the Israelites drew near to Benjamin the second day. This time when the Benjamites came out from Gibeah to oppose them, they cut down another 18,000 Israelites, all of them armed with swords. Then the Israelites, verse 26, all the people went up to Bethel, and there they sat weeping before the Lord. They fasted that day until evening, presented burnt offerings, fellowship offerings to the Lord, and the Israelites inquired of the Lord, by the way, in those days, the Ark of the Covenant was, of God was there with Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, ministering before it. They asked, shall we go up again a second time against Benjamin, our brother, or not? And the Lord said, go for tomorrow. You'll actually win. So round two, Israel lost another 18,000. That's 40,000 guys died. 40,000 guys. All of Ronert Park dead. Why? Because one stupid Levite priest didn't want to be where he should have been, and he took a wife that he shouldn't have had, and she cheated on a husband she shouldn't have cheated on, and that's why 40,000 people are dead. We need to think. It's just my life. I'm not hurting anybody. So double-day losses, they start weeping, they're fasting, various offerings. And, and so they say, 
you know, uh, God is humbling the nation, and they say one more time, and the Lord says, yes, go, you'll win, verses 29 through 48. Then Israel set an ambush against Gibeah. They went up against the Benjamites on the third day and took up positions against Gibeah as they had done before. The Benjamites came out to meet them and were drawn away from the city. They began to inflict casualties on the Israelites as before, so that about 30 men fell in the open field on the roads, the one leading to Bethel and the other to Gibeah. While the Benjamites were saying, we are defeating them as before, the Israelites were saying, let's retreat and draw them away from the city to the roads. All the men of Israel moved from their places and took up positions at Baal Tamar, and the Israelites' ambush charged out of its place on the west of Gibeah. Then 10,000 of Israel's finest men made a frontal attack on Gibeah. The fighting was so heavy that the Benjamites did not realize how near disaster was. The Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel, and on that day the Israelites struck down 25,100 Benjamites, all armed with swords. Then the Benjamites saw that they were beaten. Now the men of Israel had given way before Benjamin because they relied on the ambush they had set near Gibeah. So their, their ambush is, has worked. The men who had been in ambush made a sudden dash into Gibeah, spread out, and put the whole city to the sword. The men of Israel had arranged with the ambush that they should send up a great cloud of smoke from the city, and then the men of Israel would turn in battle. The Benjamites had begun to inflict casualties on the men of Israel, about 30, and they said, we're defeating them, as in the first battle. But when the column of smoke began to rise in the city, the Benjamites turned and saw the smoke. The whole city was going up, uh, the smoke in the sky. Then the men of Israel turned on them, and the men of Benjamin were terrified because they realized that disaster had come upon them. So they fled before Israelites, in the direction of the desert, but they could not escape the battle, and the men of Israel who came out of the towns cut them down there. They surrounded the Benjamites, chased them, and easily overran them in the vicinity of Gibeah on the east. 18,000 Benjamites fell, all of them valiant fighters. As they turned and fled toward the desert to the rock of Rimmon, the Israelites cut down 5,000 men along the roads. They kept pressing after the Benjamites as far as Get them and struck down 2,000 more. On that day, 25,000 Benjamite swordsmen fell, all of them valiant fighters, but 600 men turned and fled into the desert of the Rock of Rimmon, where they stayed for four months. The men of Israel went back to Benjamin and put all the towns to the sword. None of this is coming from the Lord's directive. Of course, he gave them initial victory, but then they're going way too far, including the animals and everything else they found in all the towns they came across. They set fire. Roman numeral number six, round Three. So Benjamin's defeated by a strategy similar to Joshua 8, the ambush. Now, you got 600 men from one tribe left. No women, no children. All of the tribe of Benjamin is reduced to 600 single men, just a remnant. And now all of Israel is going to feel bad about this, but it's 
not totally over. Chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. The men of Israel had taken an oath at Mizpah. Not one of us going to give his daughter in marriage to a Benjamite. So we got 600 Benjamites left. And they have sworn they're not getting any women, so we're going to make them extinct. The people went to Bethel, where they sat before God until evening, raising their voices and weeping bitterly. Oh, Lord, the God of Israel, they cried. Why has this happened to Israel? Are you kidding me? I could have told you why this happened to you, you bunch of crazy people. Why should one tribe be missing from Israel today? Now they're sad about that. These guys are going to have no wives, no kids. As soon as they all die, there's no more tribe of Benjamin. Early the next day, the people built an altar and presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Israelites asked, who from all the tribes? Now they're going to try to figure out what to do about this. We've only got 600 Benjamites who are going to need wives. So who from all the tribes of Israel has failed to assemble before the Lord? For they had taken a solemn oath that anyone who failed to assemble before the Lord at Mizpah would certainly be put to death. So is there a town that we could go in and wipe out legally because they, we said, if you don't show up, we'll put you to death. So was there a little village that kind of missed the memo? We could go in and kill everybody except the virgin daughters. And then we'll round up them and we'll give them to the Benjamite guys. You got a problem with that? I thought so. So then they asked, which of the tribes of Israel failed uh, to show up? Verse, I can't read it. They discovered that no one from Jabesh Gilead had come to the camp. So verse 9. For when they counted the people, they found that none of those people from Jabesh Gilead were there. So the assembly assembly sent 12,000 fighters with the instructions to go to Jabesh Gilead to put to the sword those living there, including the women and the children. This is what you should do. This is right in our sight, they said. Kill every male and every woman who's not a virgin. Kill every male and every woman who's not, who is not a virgin. Yeah, that's right. Verse 12, they found among the people living in Jabesh Gilead 400 young women who never slept with a man, and they took them to the camp there at Shiloh. And then the whole assembly sent an offer of peace to the Benjamites at the Rock of Rimmon. So the Benjamites returned at that time and were given the women of Jabesh Gilead who had been spared, but there were not enough for all of them. So they got 600 guys. They're like, okay, listen, we have always been the 12 tribes. Since Genesis chapter 35, it's been 12, 12, 12, the 12 tribes, the 12 tribes. We can name them in our sleep and forward and backward. And now guess what? We're going to be the 11 tribes. We can't do that. Now, how are we going to fix that? We already made an oath. We said we can't give them any of our daughters. So now we found a way to get some. But there weren't enough. There are 200 guys. Like So they send the 400 girls with a peace offering. We're so sorry we killed your entire tribe. <laughs> but here, take these girls. There's not enough of them. There's about 400 of you can start a new life. And here we threw in some shekels and whatever. And, you know, there you go. And they're like, excuse us. We got 200 more of us. What are you going to do? 
So they said, well, let's think about that. And so let's finish up and we'll be done with the book of Judges. I just wanted to get through it. And could you blame me? You got a problem with that? I don't think so. All right, 15th through the end. Okay, so now we're, we're looking for a legal way to get 200 more girls, all right? So the people grieved for Benjamin because the Lord had made a gap in the tribes of Israel. And the elders of the assembly said, with the women of Benjamin destroyed, how shall we provide wives for the men who are left? The Benjamite survivors must have heirs, they said, so that a tribe of Israel will not be wiped out. We can't give them our daughters as wives, since we Israelites have taken an oath, cursed be anyone who gives a wife to a Benjamite. But look, hmm, that's a great idea coming. There is an annual festival, a holiday of the Lord, the Feast of Tabernacles, by the way, in Shiloh. To the north of Bethel and the east of the road, da 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 da. da. Verse 20. So they instructed the Benjamites, saying, Okay, here's our plan, guys. It seems really right in our own eyes. Go and hide in the vineyards and watch. When the girls of Shiloh come out to join in the dancing, then rush from the vineyards, and each of you seize a wife from the girls of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. When their fathers or brothers complain to us, we'll say to them, don't uh, do us a kindness by helping them because we did not get wives for them during the war and you are innocent since you did not give your daughters to them. So that is what the Benjamins, Benjamites did. While the girls were dancing, each man caught one. Unbelievable and carried her off to be his wife. Then they returned to their inheritance. They went home and started settling in. And then, surprise, way to end. Let's all read it together at verse 24. At that time, the Israelites left that place and went home to their tribes and clans, each to his own inheritance. In those days, Israel had no king, Everyone did as he saw fit. Verse, uh, rather, Roman numeral number eight, as Forrest Gump's mama said, (laughs) stupid is as stupid does. Now they've said, let me finish up here. Thank you for the uh, marathon. Now listen, they're saying, we said we never give our daughters to a Benjamite. We did not say they couldn't take them from us. And so, guys, here's what we're going to do. The next holy day, it's a holy day. It's not like uh, 4th of July. It's like a Resurrection Sunday. It's like Christmas. So here's what we're going to do. At the party, when the dance floor is like lively, And all the young women are out there. We'll make sure that there are all virgins out there. And they're doing the dance and the wine is flowing. You get an opportunity. Come out from the vineyards and just take one for yourself. Fellas, find one that pleases you. Pick her up and carry her back to Benjamin. And start a new life. Praise the Lord. (laughs) 
You're going to look around for some of these guys, I'm telling you, in heaven. I don't know that you're going to find a bunch of them. That's just not the way to go about. What about their fathers? Oh, don't worry about the dads and the brothers. Don't worry about that. We'll take care of them. Dad, brother, yo, listen. It's a good thing. Come on, we got some shekels for you, too. So, uh, can you hear them? What else could we do? We gave an oath. These guys need wives. You got a problem with that? <laughs> yeah, we do. One proverb sums up the entire book of Judges. Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. When a man follows his own instincts, and inclinations, it leads to ruin. We must follow God's way, not our own. I've got six one-liners from the book of Judges. Number one, avoid God's spankings by obeying the first time. Amen? Amen. Number two, the things my sinful nature craves will ultimately bring me pain and misery. Amen? Number three, once the sewer spigot gets opened, it's really hard to close, and it's really messy. It's smart to keep it closed. Amen. <laughs> Number four, the way out of any spiritual rut is repentance, change of heart, evidenced by changed behavior. Amen? Amen. Number five, my way, bad. God's way, good. Amen? No, that's not a hard one. And, and number six, my favorite. That God would send his son to descend into such moral depravity and love a world so bent on doing evil and rebelling against him is only further evidence of the marvel, the glory, the majesty, the honor, and praise due him for his unfathomable riches, God's grace, his patience, his love, he becomes one of them. He's a Jew from the line of Judah. His father is God the Father, the Holy Spirit. He has no earthly father, but he's related to them. Some of those guys at the door and by his power and through his grace and love, he could take a guy who was at the door who did that deed and change him into an Apostle Paul or a Mary Magdalene. That's the power of love and gospel and God and the glory of God that he didn't just blink his eyes and do away with the whole nation of them. To this nation, he will elect a king. King Saul, who's a Benjamite. He's a descendant of the lone 600. That doesn't go so well. <laughs> but then up from Bethlehem will come King David. And through King David's biological seed, the savior of the world, 28 generations later, you got Jesus in Bethlehem being born.
the love of God wins. And all he says is just turn to me, trust me, and you can win too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And God, we, we just get it. We're going to let the word do its work, speak to our hearts, and slap us around, and let us smell the smelling salts of a life that divorces itself from the truth of God. It's not a place we want to be. Some of us have caught a little whiff of that in our own lives, and we turn by your grace and your goodness. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.